Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You're listening to Setting the Pace, your go-to Pacers podcast with Alex Golden and Michael Focci. Sabonis down the lane with authority. Oh, Miles Turner bringing that smoke. Lundberg skies high for the jam. Warren lets it fly. Yes! T.J. Warren is not human. The Setting the Pace podcast had Kevin Pritchard on. Well, you got Setting the Pace, and I think that's terrific. Pacer Nation, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Setting the Pace. My co-host Mike Focci is not able to join me. He is enjoying his holiday weekend, but have no fear. We got a podcast coming for you from the Miller Time Pod. We got Dave Cyril. And now the Miller Time Pod has been put to, put to bed, I believe, but Dave still does a great job running the account, so he is joining me today. Dave, what's going on, man? Has been put out of its uh, misery, I suppose, <laughs> a few years ago. Um, I'm, I'm going great. I really appreciate you uh, having me on. Uh, this is uh, uh, it's going to be fun. It's always good to chop it up about the team, and I appreciate the opportunity to do so. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, I've been wanting to get you on for a while. I just know our schedules haven't worked out uh, because of our, you know, when we can record and when we can't. So this this worked out. I'm not usually off during the week, so this this worked out perfectly for us. But Obviously, this was an up and down season for the Pacers, you know, making it to the play-in tournament, but not making the actual playoffs, getting eliminated by Washington. Just before we jump into all this kind of stuff, like just a quick overview of this season. I feel like there was a lot of different things that happened this entire season. But what was just your overall thoughts on this year as a whole? Well, I think Pr- Pritchard would disagree with you that that they didn't make the playoffs, which I thought was funny. He was like, <laughs> I don't care what you say. It's like if you play it and you're going to be eliminated, then it, that's the playoffs to me. And I appreciate the uh, the spin that he put on that, which uh, I'd probably do the same thing if I were him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this season, I mean, this is this is one of the wildest seasons I think in Pacers history. I think um, this is. I mean, it really the brawl season is the one that really compares. Um, you know, I started following the team in, you know, the early 90s. So I'm sure that there were maybe some years in the 80s that were kind of maybe weird or maybe not memorable, uh, perhaps. I can't really speak a lot to that time. Usually if people talk about the 80s, they'll say, okay, there's uh, there's there's Chuck, there's Chuck, just no Chuck, and then the rest of it just throw it in the garbage. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the team started when Reggie Miller joined the team. And so I've always just sort of taken that. Uh, so I can't speak to that, but... Other than the brawl, this I think was the the wildest season in Pacers uh, history, and just everything that happened from a coaching change to the I mean, the pandemic that was a, a little bit of a factor. Obviously, you you're going to watch uh, archival footage of the games this season, and I'm going to have to explain to my kids what was happening uh, because <laughs> there's nobody in the stands. Um, Victor. Um, turns down a max extension that I didn't think he would actually get offered. Both of those decisions I thought were kind of wild. Um, and, you know, of course, he gets traded for a guy that has freaking cancer. I mean, I've never heard that before. Um, not aware that that's happened quite in that sense. 
Um, I don't know if you ever did a little dive into people having cancer. I, I didn't realize that James Conner had cancer. Did you know that? I had no idea. Yeah, he had cancer in college. And oh, wow. um, uh, was it Mario Lemieux that had cancer? Uh, there's been a few athletes that have had it in their primes. Uh, but obviously getting traded and finding that out and then having the decision to reverse it or not is a very interesting kind of hypothetical thing that I'm sure, you know, if you're, if you're running a team, there's got to be a lot of time where you're just kind of sitting around running through hypotheticals, just figuring out what you would do if something popped up. I don't think that star player that you just traded for has cancer was one of them. So I think that they had to kind of make that up as they went along. Um, I'm missing a lot of stuff. Uh, TJ Warren being out for the year, uh, Nate Bjorkren coming up with, you know, being hired to revolutionize the offense and then instead creating like the weirdest defensive strategies I've ever seen before, um, was very strange as well. Uh, you know, uh, Foster yelling at Goga, um, <laughs> I'm, 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 and I'm missing things. I know I'm missing some stuff. So this is, um, I mean, just all the injuries. Yeah, the fact that we went into the season really excited to finally see the starting five together. And it still, they never, play, I guess, in the first game or two with TJ Warren limping through the court, technically counted. But, you know, um, I'm not counting that. I think we've still not seen the starting five play. Um the playing game existing. I mean, geez, this all of that together. Um, that is, this is just the craziest season I think the Pacers have ever had. Yeah, I'll put it this way: it felt to me like I was on a roller coaster that was never ending, and I couldn't wait for it just to be finished. Yeah, that's that's how I felt. Like, I mean, during the year, like at the beginning of the season, you're getting kind of excited. You're seeing some new offensive innovations. You see Sabonis have that big game winner over Boston. You know, the the game against New Orleans was a lot of fun. I think that was my favorite game of the season because everybody contributed to that comeback win down in New Orleans. I mean, I'm thinking, okay, this team's actually going to be okay. You know, I'm really excited for what Bjorkman's going to do. And then all of a sudden, the whole Averto Oladipo thing happens, and it's just like they went on this huge roller coaster after that. And it was, it was pretty bad, T.J. Warren, obviously. I think there was a lot of things Pritchard said talking about how they didn't realize how important T.J. Warren was to the team. I mean, that's kind of interesting that he said that. Um, but I, overall, I, one of the most interesting things to me was something that Scott Agnes reported, and it was how Kevin Pritchard in the front office moved like two feet away from the bench. And I'd, I had never really noticed it because I didn't pay attention to that kind of stuff. But as he was there live, he mentioned that they were closer to the bench. And I realized, yeah, Kevin Pritchard's been down there high-fiving people when they go to halftime and stuff like that. I'm not used to him see, uh, doing that. So, I mean, did you did you notice that at all? Or did you see Scott's report and, like, what are your thoughts on the, the the front office being right there behind the bench? Um, it's weird because it's it's paying attention to where the front office is in relation to the bench is just something that has never really registered with me. And yeah. I feel a little out of my depth, kind of talking about maybe how unusual it is. Obviously, I think that they're really concerned about the coaching, like uh, like everyone is. Um, I think that they maybe just wanted to get a, a little bit more. Um, uh, I, I think that maybe they suspect that the way that he's interacting with players and his assistance is a problem, just like it's been reported. Um, that seems pretty uh, clear. And the fact that they wanted to get um, see that with their own eyes on the court, I suppose, um, is interesting. I just, you know, it's not something that's ever really come on my radar before, but obviously it's one of those things where it's pointed out and so many people talk about how weird that is. I, I kind of take that on face, so to speak. And um, I think it's pretty clear that they're not happy with uh, what happened with uh, uh, Bjorken this year. 
Yeah, so let's stay with this whole thing. This is kind of the hot topic of the offseason. Kind of, you know, we're sitting in limbo trying to figure out what they're going to do because he is under contract, so I guess they don't say anything. He's going to be here next season, but I'm sure they'll come out with some type of statement, whether they're keeping or letting him go. But with that being said, after hearing all the reports, reading all the reports, and hearing Kevin Pritchard talk about the whole entire situation in the press conference, what are your overall thoughts on Bjorkren and his uh, – likelihood of him returning this next season um the only thing left to explain is maybe why it hasn't kind of happened yet um my opinion would be that he's gone i mean the fact that they went into that press conference and didn't say hey he needs a look he, he's got to handle uh his players a little better he's got to handle his assistants a little better maybe he's got to tweak a few things and we'll look in, um, uh, forward to him doing that in year two the fact that they didn't come out saying that is just kind of a, a kind of a kiss of death a little bit Mm-hmm. Um, it is very, very difficult to retain a coach while going into a press conference and not saying, oh, yeah, he's coming back. Um, and so, but the only question is the sort of the delay. You would expect that acts to sort of like a fall as soon as the season is over. And I guess my two thoughts on maybe why that's happening is that they don't want to rush into firing a coach for a second time in, in one year, actually, because it's been such a condensed year. It's, it wasn't really that long ago that they fired another coach, um, and there was a lot of blowback uh, from people. I think maybe that weren't following the Pacers as closely, which is kind of the case, um, that uh, maybe McMillan should have kept the job and maybe he was doing a good enough job and the roster wasn't good enough. And so um, there was some pushback on maybe that was an unjust firing. So to go with another firing immediately afterwards without having a lot of thought and consideration about it, it could be that they're trying to create uh, a perception that this was maybe very difficult and not taken lightly. Um, And it's also true that they could just literally be not wanting to make this decision lightly. (laughs) Um, And, um, you know, I'm sure they're actually going through these paces. Um, and so uh, what, what mixture of that is sort of a percep- public perception thing versus a, uh, we really do want to think about this. It could be that they really don't want to do it and they're trying to find any sort of reason to, to kind of keep him around or any sort of hope. Uh, they may be trying to talk him. Oh, well, actually, another thing that I thought might be true is that they might be looking at veteran assistance um, yeah. and saying, because the report was going into the season that there was a lot of veteran assistants that did not want to be on his staff. Right. Um, we don't know how true that is specifically. I don't know if we've had much confirmation of that, but it could be that they're asking around uh, to uh, a lot of other uh, veteran coaches and seeing what kind of staff they could assemble if he was going to give it a go. Uh, maybe even hiring who they would uh, make the next head coach and make him the assistant and do that sort of thing. Um, uh, that, that could be part of it um, as well. And it, it also might be the case that they are – putting out feelers for the next replacement coach and see if they're interested or into it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think maybe Mike D'Antoni seems like a pretty obvious candidate. He was obviously a very major candidate the year before, um, and he took an assistant job rather than a head coaching job, so he's ready to jump back into the the seat if if that um, is deemed necessary. Um, So it could be that they're just trying to ask to see if the best coaches are available, and if they're not, maybe give them one more year. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they gave him two years. They kind of set this up in a way that if they had to let him go after one year that they'd be able to do it. Um, I imagine the thought process when they hired him was, 
we want you to – we already have a top 10 defense. We're taking everybody back. We want you to just change the offense and get a little bit more creative. Um, and, you know, there's no reason with the offensive talent that they have that they shouldn't be a top 10 um, offense, I think. Yeah. Um, but, you know, obviously uh, T.J. Warren being injured is is part of that. And they have that same factor hanging over their heads a little bit too, that there's been so many injuries. It's like, hey, did you really get a good, accurate feel for the coaching? Um, now, when, when kind of talking about McMillan's firing last year, I always come back to he lost the locker room. It was clear that they were not – that they tuned Nick McMillan out. And once you do that, it's kind of time to move on. The Pacers even fired Rick Carlisle because he lost the locker room. I mean, it's kind of – even if you're that good of a coach, if you lost the ears of people, then you're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so you always want to kind of, at least as fans, just try to find, like, what's that thing that you can point to and peg and say, this is a specific reason why, even though there's these injuries, that we need a new coach. And for me, it's just kind of how inexplicable the defense was. Um, yeah, yeah. That was – it's just hard to explain. And, you know, when, when Jim O'Brien was coach of the Pacers, um, he was also someone that was not popular with assistants, not popular with the players. Uh, that was someone that was making everybody upset. He was also trying to do pace and space at a time when that was kind of a big deal. Like nobody, not many people had done that. The, the Suns had already gone to seven seconds or less, but they were one of the first teams to really go in all in and switch to that. Um, even like, you know, playing Danny Granger at the four at some points was kind of a big deal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, part of me, a little, there's a little bug in the back of my head that kind of smiles about this, but thinking, is Nate Bjorken like the defensive coach of the future? And is everybody going to be doing this? But just people just don't get it right now. <laughs> and like he's just too cant- uh, cantankerous with these uh, with uh, players and coaches to keep the job. It's kind of weird. It's it's odd how closely that lines up. That oh, you're right. doing these crazy strategies that seem like almost uh, 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 they just seem completely wrong. And that people are kind of fighting against, like, you idiot, why are you even doing this in the first place? And everybody hates him. It's kind of interesting how well that lines up. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, I, I, but I think he's gone. I, I do think that whatever the reason for the delay is, there's just a reason for it. And I think they're going to let him go. I think you made a lot of great points. And I think all of them are probably somewhat true and why there's not been a decision made yet. Just because I have to go through this whole process. They clearly went through, I think it was almost two months before they hired a coach last year. I, I think they fired McMillan on August 26th and hired Bjorken on October 20th. So during that time, I'm assuming they they did enough interviews and stuff like that to have a list of candidates. And if this doesn't work out, I'm sure they still have some people on their short list from last season that they would reconsider. You know, I don't know if Chris Finch was one of those guys, but he's with Minnesota now. But I mean, at least you said it, Dan Tony. Um, it appeared that Chauncey Billups was on that short list as well. He's been the guy that I've thought made a lot of sense for the Pacers just because I don't know how expensive he'd be, but I think he'd be a little bit cheaper than D'Antoni because of zero coaching experience. But also I feel like he'd be relatable to the players. Now, I don't know anything about his X's and O's. So there's a, there's a wide open field for, you know, people to come at me on that stance and say, well, what what does he do X and O's wise and defensive wise? I, I have zero idea, but what we saw from Bjorkren, like the defense, she said it, it was just bizarre. And I thought the thing that was the most interesting to me was when he was hired, they talked about his relationship with the players being like so important to him. And they also talked about his adjustments. And I felt like those were the two areas he really failed in this season. 
the, the adjustments to Washington were not there. Yeah. Um, it, it made zero sense to me. And I know a lot of people have pointed this out, but why are we guarding Russell Westbrook all the way at the three-point line, like allowing him to do what he wants to do? I mean, this guy looked like Michael Jordan and LeBron James combined against the Pacers this year. So it's to me, it just didn't it didn't make a whole lot of sense on what he was doing. Now, I do think that we saw some really nice things from him and, and what he could do with the offense. And I really – it was kind of weird. I felt like statistically, offensively, almost every Pacer got better this season. But, but the team as a whole got worse. So I think there's something that you can look at there – my my whole takeaway from Bjorkren is I just feel like sometimes coach sometimes guys are better as assistant coaches than head coaches and that might be the case with Bjorkren, great basketball mind but he's just not a head coach material and I feel that same way about a defensive guru like Dan Burke I I don't necessarily think he'd be a great head coach but he's really great at that one specific thing on defense so that's kind of where I stand with it but I didn't know if you had any other names besides D'Antoni that you might be kind of interested in. Well, I think that it's hard because you don't really know what happens behind the scenes. And, you know, even with, like, going back to Nate McMillan, it took me forever to have, like, an opinion about him because I don't know. Like, I, I don't know what he, what specifically he's saying in this locker room. I don't know specifically what he's responsible for. And so I feel really uncomfortable on that. And it gets even worse when you talk about trying to hire a new coach. I mean, these are just names. I mean, like, yeah, Becky Hammond was, uh, you know, uh, uh, the the protege of Greg Popovich. Okay, that sounds cool. I mean, like, I, you know, it's just I, I I don't really have any more way of figuring that out beyond that. I mean, supposedly I you know I like the bureaucrat hire because he'd be so good at making adjustments, and it didn't really seem like he was making very many adjustments. So even the little kernel of information that we had about this guy wasn't even true, I guess, in practice. And so that makes me kind of really uncomfortable about that. Um, making a, a hard evaluation on that. Um, and, you know, it actually, it's one thing that made me laugh, as you mentioned, the, the play against Boston. Um, nothing encapsulated the season better than when that fight, that play got drawn up. You think, oh, this, you're kind of dreading this late game pacer situation. They make the draw a brilliant play based off the expectations, what the defense would do. Sabonis spins and gets an easy layup. And you're like, that's it. That's what the Pacers have been missing. And it was so exciting mm-hmm. that a couple of games later, I forget who they were playing, but it's like, oh, what's he going to drop this time? It's like, oh, it's the same. It's the same play. <laughs> yep. And it's like, it's the India play. All, it's just <laughs> the color just drained from my face. And like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> After all of that, mocking of the India play, and now we've got our own India play. Um, that was pretty weird. But um, one name – okay, so you mentioned Chauncey Billups, and I think that th- that is an interesting name for a specific reason because the Pacers have a pretty awesome team building strategy that's been obscured by injuries, and that is that they're trying to recreate like the twenty uh, the 2005 Pistons, right? I think. Now, the, the, those Pistons teams were a dominant defensive teams. That's not what I'm talking about. It might not be a dominant defense. It's, that's, not, that's not what made them unique. What made them unique is that there were five guys that were like borderline all-star players, none of them superstars, but there were five of them. And having all five of them on the court for the majority of the game made the team better than the sum of their parts. Um, and they also they fit together really well, too. I mean, all their, their talents complemented each other. And then they had that raw talent level. 
Uh, you know, the Pistons are not going to be a team that signs a couple superstars. That's basically the only way that they can build a contender. I don't know if he's doing it literally or specifically, but it is very clear to me. It's been clear for a while, but like that, that's this postseason press conference really hammered at home where Pritchard just basically kind of showed the hand and said, we want five guys that can, that are capable of this. Uh, ideally five guys that could score 20 on any, any given night. That's sort of the, the kind of uh, metric for that. Miles Turner is a little bit of an exception to that, but he brings that defensive excellence. That sure sounds like the four uh, perimeter players for the Pistons plus the defensive anchor of Ben Wallace. You know, like it's kind of similar the way that they're putting that together. And um, Chauncey Billups would have firsthand knowledge of that. And it's that if there's any sort of smoothing over of, hey, no individual guy here is going to be a big star, but you're all going to work together and be better. Um, maybe he could be a good uh, guiding uh, voice for that type of team building strategy. Um, and so that's what really kind of intrigues me about that particular thing. Um, if the Pacers ever get all these five guys healthy at one time, they're going to be pretty good. And perhaps Billups would be the best uh, person to manage uh, uh, that kind of uh, strategy going forward. So that's maybe a bit of an intriguing name, but I still think that there's a lot of potential, a lot of potential, really in this offense. Mm-hmm. And I think what they have enough unique talents, enough talents that complement each other that they could fit together in a really, really awesome way. And that's always why it's still intriguing to me to have D'Antoni as the coach, because I think if anybody's going to figure that out, it's going to be him. Yeah. See, I was actually decently high on D'Antoni last year. And a lot of people were like, Oh no, he's an old, he's a retread. We want somebody new. Well, well, this is what you get when you get somebody that you don't have any idea what they yeah. bring to the table. I mean, that's the high risk, high reward, I guess you could say with uh, Bjorken, but you really didn't get any of that high reward. You just got the high risk. And, and yeah. you know, like you said with Chauncey, one of the things that we heard about with Bjorken, you mentioned it was not being able to get better in assistance to come coach with them. I feel like Chauncey has a good enough personality where he could get coaches to come work for him. And yeah. that would allow him not to necessarily be so dominant on X's and O's, but if he can get really strong assistance around him, then he could, you know, kind of allow those coaches to integrate the offense and the defense. Well, obviously, his, uh, you know, his thumbprint on what's going on. But at the same time, he'd be able to be more of the manager, so to say, of the personalities and trying to mesh with one another. Because to me, that's where I'm kind of confused on where this team goes moving forward. Because clearly, somebody, some players were talking to the media to get these reports out here. I don't think it was just like oh, so-and-so said, and it just they ran with it. No, I really do think that where there's smoke, there is fire. And one thing I've noticed, and it's just an observation from a lot of the reports I've heard, is Malcolm Brogdon seems to be really high on a coach when they first when he first comes in, and then by the end of the season, if things aren't going the way he anticipates them going, he seems to be a little disgruntled. And I was kind of surprised to hear him back Coach Bjorkren up you know, later after they lost to the Wizards and and all that stuff. But before the Hornets game, he really didn't have too many nice things to say about him. So that's – I'm just kind of torn there with how I feel about him. But as far as this roster goes, we're talking about team building here. You said they got to get five that can score 20 every night hypothetically or, you know, like you said, build around like a Pistons team did in the the early 2000s. Do you think there should be significant changes to this uh, starting five? Not should – I think that there's still an opportunity to say we've got two centers. It's not perfect. And 
you got two kind of directions that you can go as a franchise, depending on which one you keep. But if you swap one out for a excellent perimeter player, then I think that they're going to be better. And whether that means being an, a truly excellent offense with Sabonis as a center, or being a team that's a little bit more defensive-oriented and a little bit more balanced with Miles Turner as a center, I just I still think... And, you know, I've thought this from the moment that Sabonis started coming on after the trade with the Pacers, that the future of this team is trading one of them to balance out the roster. And it just, that's never changed the entire time. Um, I think that Pacers fans have a little bit of amnesia because you hear, I, I've seen so many fans say, oh, they'll never do it. They'll never break them up. Um, the plan a few months ago was to break them up. Yeah. Like the plan was to trade for Gordon Hayward. Um, and so, <laughs> I mean, that was what they they very nakedly wanted to do. And so, I mean, they've already tried to break them up. So I think that they have an eye on that, of course. It's just about who it is. They're not going to take one of these players and break them off for, like, three good players. It's, that's not going to happen, I don't think. Um, I would be really surprised to see that kind of move. It is, I got a big, you got a wing, let's swap them. Um, that's the kind of situation that if the right player comes along, um, I think that there's a possibility there. And then the question is, which one of these players is going to be uh, involved in that? And so, um, oh, you, 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 With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You like uh, uh, hypothetical fake moves, right? Yeah, hit me. So uh, two names, I think, kind of come out a little bit. Now, if some you know player, good player gets disgruntled or wants to trade or blah, 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 and that pops up, then it is what it is. I think they're going to look at that kind of situation. But... Uh, I know he's a little older, but he fits a profile. I wouldn't be surprised to see them look at DeMar DeRozan, honestly. Really? Uh, he's 31 years old. He's a little bit older. I think that's the biggest detriment to it. But like that profile of he's not a superstar. He's not going to get a maxed out contract. He wants to win. He obviously has, it seems like, the kind of uh, attitude that you want out of a player. Um meaning he's not going to come in and try to be a star and disrupt the chemistry. I think he's going to be uh, interested in fitting in with the squad. Um, a guy who has a little bit of uh, an old school touch to his game, which they clearly like um, that would attracted them to Brogdon a little bit, attracted them to Warren attracts them uh, to Levert. Um, you know, he has that same kind of ability to get into the second level and score. Uh, but he has also refined his game to the point where he is better at passing up easy, bad shots and getting, uh, you know, his true shooting percentage, I think was close to 0.6. I mean, that's, that's what you want out of a guard. Um, his assist way up. He had, I think the best season of his career last year. Um, and so probably fitting in into a salary in the 20 to 25 range, uh, being someone that is going to be um, willing to be part of a, of a starting five, um, and being that kind of ball handling guard that is not a true point guard, but can split responsibilities 
I think that they want that kind of three-way split if they're going to go with uh, uh, four perimeter players where Brogdon, Levert, and in this case, DeRozan would be handling the ball kind of equal share sort of uh, thing and, you know, staggered with the bench. Um, that's a name that I think is uh, – fits the kind of Pacers profile of what they're looking for to be the fit into that starting five. So uh, I wouldn't be that surprised to see that pop up as a side and train scenario. Um, I think that the Spurs do love and value big. So I don't think it'll be hard to talk them into either uh, option that they go with there. Um, And then who knows, this isn't really firm for me because there's roadblocks to it, but another one would be Lonzo ball in the sense that he would be cost controlled because he's on a second contract. So his, his, his extension wouldn't be crazy expensive uh, in the sense that it wouldn't be like 35, $40 million that is for the top level players. Um, the Pelicans seem to be pretty nakedly interested in uh, miles Turner uh, roadblocks to that obviously would be if, if he wanted a bigger role or wanted to, uh, uh, you know, be in a bigger market. He has the freedom uh, to choose potentially um, if the Pelicans let him go. Also, the Pelicans have tied themselves to Stephen Adams, and that kind of uh, puts a little bit of a roadblock into making Miles Turner at their center if that's the direction that they want to go to. Mm-hmm. But those are two. Those would be the two that I'd throw out. But it has to be someone that is going to hold their weight as a near all-star uh, player, and that is someone that can play on the perimeter with TJ Warren at the four. That would be the two requirements. Uh, hopefully someone that can initiate their own offense and handle the ball. Um, and those are the two guys that kind of fit that profile that are that are maybe somewhat up for grabs this offseason. Yeah, so I've actually – I've talked with some people about the Lonzo Ball idea for a sign-and-trade, and I think, I think you can make it work. I still think that there's going to be teams out there that might value having Steven Adams as a starting center depending on – who they have available because I think Sacramento is a team that they don't really have a starting big right now. I mean, Marvin Bagley was their draft pick, but that's clearly not worked out the way they wanted it to. And Holmes is a free agent. Yes. And I, and I actually, I'm going to put on record. I think Holmes probably goes to uh, Toronto. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, If it's not Toronto, I could see him going to somewhere like Charlotte just because of how he fits and how he plays. But I do think Toronto makes some sense. But as far as like trading, I mean, I've, I've looked at several different teams for who could want a center. And even though the Pelicans do have Steven Adams, they've clearly been enamored with Miles Turner for a very long time. And I have talked to a couple different guys that cover the Pelicans. And back when they had Drew Holiday, I said, would you guys do like a Turner plus for Drew Holiday? And they were actually okay to that idea at that point. Um, I think it was actually after they drafted Zion, they said that they, they think Turner fits really great next to Zion. And I had Pacer fans saying, oh, you can't trade for Drew Holiday. He's too old. He's he's not good enough. I'm like, I, I, I'm sorry, but I think Drew Holiday is a massive upgrade over Miles Turner, especially in terms of fit and what you're trying to do with this team going forward. But I, I do think that DeRozan is an interesting name. And I, when you were talking about it at first, I was like, how does he fit in there with Levert and Warren? Because they're all kind of like not great three-point shooters. Um, I know they've they're trying to work on that, but that's still something they struggle with. They both they all seem to thrive really with the ball in their hands. How would they be able to play that way? So I guess that'd be my only counter to the Demar Derozan type of move. But I do think that there is something there if you were to do a sign and trade, maybe with Turner and and Jeremy Lamb to fit salaries to kind of go back and and maybe free up a little bit of cap space because I know San Antonio has close to like forty five million dollars this this coming off season. 
in cap space. So maybe they'd be willing to eat, you know, that one year of Jeremy Lamb. But I, I think that that actually does make some sense on paper. But as as far as how they would fit together, I mean, does that give you any concern? Oh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, th- that was mainly a anticipate what the Pacers would do. Um and not necessarily like if I'm the GM of the team, that's what I do. If that makes any sort of yeah, sense, yeah. Um, maybe a little bit. Um, obviously, you always want those perimeter players to be able to shoot um, a little bit better and be able to uh, space out the floor. And you know that's always been kind of the the bug in the career of uh, Demar Derozan. And, and I think that there's certainly a case to be made that if you've got Brogdon and you've got Levert already. You've got enough general and, and Sabonis obviously as an offensive hub. You've got enough creation that you're not really starving for that. And so then maybe you have too many possessions where Demar Rosen's kind of standing in a corner, and that's not ideal. So yeah, I mean, I I would be I would not love the move if it were to happen. I right. wouldn't really I wouldn't be a fan of it that much. That was more of an anticipation of what they could do and what fits their profile and what is available. But if they were going to make it. Uh, my general thought would be strong hesitance at something like that happening. Okay. So I think one trade that kind of makes sense, I don't know if it would happen. It almost makes too much sense for both teams. But I think that with Sacramento, they might need a might need a starting center. I think that a Harrison Barnes for Miles Turner trade makes sense in terms of what the Pacers need because they could use another big wing like that that can play the four. I think you can also play the three in certain situations if you need to go bigger. But it doesn't make you feel like you have to play T.J. Warren mostly at the four, but you can still play him there in stretches and not feel like it's forced. But I feel like that trade would happen or could make a lot of sense and could happen. But at the same time, with Turner being so much younger, I would probably ask them to do a pick swap this year since they have higher, uh, since they have a higher pick than the Pacers. But they're also getting a better talent. I just I've seen that trade a few different times thrown around on like uh, NBA Trade Machine and of course, Twitter, and I was looking at it myself, and I thought in terms of trying to build a modern roster, that move is pretty low-key, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Did I, the reason why I would be really hesitant about that is that I just don't think that it really opens up the offense or improves it enough to justify the pretty big dip in defense that you get there. And so that that's the one that's really tough, that if you get – if you trade Turner, you've got to end up with something that has a potential to be top five offense. Yeah. It, there's just no – nothing short of that will make that work because you have to make it an excellent one because you're just not ever going to have a great defense with Sabonis playing the five full-time. And to the, the simple answer to that is I just don't think Harrison Barnes is good enough. <laughs> um, you get someone as good as Gordon Hayward, that can make it work, but Harrison's not at that level. Um, and he uh, would also be a, a problem on defense, and that that would be that would be a tough one for me. That probably end up getting uh, a, a a thumbs down for me. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. on the on the gut reaction trade when, it, when that happened, I think I think Turner's just too important to their defense. But but the pick swap is where I think where it could really make a difference because it might not seem like a lot, but moving up four to five spots in this year's draft could be pretty pivotal. If there's someone that slides down, that I feel like could be a difference maker, like. Someone I like a lot is Scotty Barnes, and I'm not sure how much you know about um, 
about his game or not. I mean, I just had Mark on to talk about him, and he did talk about some of the problems with him and Sabonis maybe playing together because of how they're used offensively and stuff like that. But he called him shades of a Thad Young, and I felt like a lot of the Thad the Thad moments with uh, or the Thad minutes with Sabonis were pretty good. And I feel like you know Barnes has a only two years left on his contract, and it's uh, it's a contract that you know. It gets lesser as each year goes on, and then maybe you could slide in Barnes there to replace him when he moves on. That's kind of the only thing I was thinking. But I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, there's so many there's so many different avenues the Pacers could go. It's just hard to figure out what's the best one. Absolutely, and that's always the the, the perpetual thing. It always makes sense to take one of them and slot them for an excellent perimeter player. Does that player ever materialize? That's what drives it. Not necessarily a in order. They're they're good enough that it's not a we have to sw- a trade make this trade in order to make this team work. I don't think. That, I mean, the biggest problem that they've had is health, mm-hmm. um, and so I don't think that that's that is super crucial. It's just whether or not that right guy um, ends up being there, and um, um, you know, hopefully. Clay Thompson just gets mad and wants to <laughs> move to the Midwest, and everything ends up working out great <laughs> uh, uh, until that sort of happens. It's uh, and it is also interesting that 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 also that other possibility that Pritchard left open is if s- several contending teams are really interested in some of the Pacers' parts, and they end up going in the other direction and trying to get younger and getting better. He, he left that open. He left that door open. He didn't say that that wasn't going to happen. Um, and I thought that that was maybe the first time I've ever really truly heard him say that. Right. Um, and, you know, it's that, that scenario where uh, uh, the Warriors get real aggressive with uh, some of the uh, future assets that they have would be um, some interesting scenarios that open up there. But that's if that happens, that is a pretty major drastic change. Um, it's just a question of would it ever be so tempting that they'd have to? Yeah, I mean, if James Wiseman's on the board <laughs> or on on the block and the, and the offer him here, I mean, I've had people ask me about it. I'm like, I just don't know what direction they'd go. Would they flip him and ride with whichever center they kept? Or, or would they try to just rebuild? I never really thought about rebuilding because it's just you don't really hear that too much with the Pacers. Um, going younger like that, it's not really been something they've ever done. But you're right. Pritchard did say he didn't want to be stuck in the middle. And that's yeah. kind of how I feel like a lot of fans are because I will – I mean, this year was rough enough, but going back and watching those Jim O'Brien years, finishing ninth, eighth, or tenth almost every season was just pitiful. And you just didn't really know what direction the team was going. Yeah. You know, the a lot of people have had the thought – but the phrase, the NBA treadmill of mediocrity, that is an invention of Kevin Pritchard. He's the one who came up with it. <laughs> it's true. Like when he was with uh, with the with the Trailblazers, uh, he was uh, um, giving a, he was part of a conference, and I think it was a Sloan conference. But he was part of a conference, and he was uh, talking about uh, team building, and that was his those words out of his mouth. So um, he is the guy who came up with that idea. So he, he's definitely someone that is very well aware of that. And I don't envy that. It must be kind of torture for him in a way that we still haven't seen this five play together. I still think they're going to be really good, but it, you just got to be honest with yourself and say, maybe it just isn't. <laughs> maybe just whatever, because it's, you know, there was a, there was a four sliding doors this year because of two trades, you know, for the Hayward, for Turner, and the Oladipo uh, for Levert. 
there's four different do one, don't do the other, do them both. Um, no matter what decisions he made, they all would have been unavailable for the playoffs. Yeah, <laughs> which is just incredible. <laughs> it's like, what do you got to do? And, and there's this, there's nothing. You can say, oh, the Pacers training staff isn't up to snuff. I, I, I think that I'd be really surprised to see that the training staff uh, called uh, plantar fasciitis and in, uh, in, in TJ Warren. Um, but um, the even the team, the players that he didn't have on the roster at all still aren't available. So, um, but it's also true that in order to get players in that sort of price range, that makes the Pacers have five of them usually in the mix a little bit of the fact that they're at that price range is the fact that they're an injury risk. Yeah. Um, that gets factored in. And that's one of the reasons why Brogdon is uh, paid what he is. Um, uh, Warren as well had a lot of availability issues uh, with the Suns, So they've, they've consciously taken on that risk a little bit. Levert obviously has missed a lot of time too. So um, all those guys have been held back a little bit by injuries. And so you do kind of bring it on your, yourself a little bit in that sort of scenario. But um, that's got to be very, very frustrating to say, what do you do going forward? How do you, quote, unquote, fix the team? Can't I just play a video game simulation of the season and see how good this team would be if everyone was healthy? Um, I got, I bet that's pretty frustrating. Oh, I, I completely agree because it's frustrating as a fan just to watch. Like, man, we can never get these guys healthy. It was almost a, you know, a game of who was or who wasn't going to be on the injury report for every single night. It's just like we never got to see this team fully right. And even when they were kind of healthy at the beginning of the year, you still knew T.J. Warren was not himself if you watched him play because he was really struggling. And one of the biggest, you know, biggest concerns when people were, you know, waiting in the offseason and we were talking about that Turner for Gordon Hayward stuff just – you know, slowly waiting to see the news happen. I think a lot of fans that brought up concerns were, well, Hayward's injury prone. So why would we trade for an injury prone guy? We already have that in, in Brogdon. So I, I kind of get where fans are coming from with trading and going after guys that have injury history. But I think that the overall talent there is what entices the Pacers to make these moves because you're not going to get them any other way. So I, I think that it was actually me and you that had this conversation on Twitter the day that Charlotte did sign Gordon Hayward. I said, do you think there's a potential trade that could happen later between Charlotte and Indiana for Hayward for Turner? And I think you kind of shut it down because of how much Hayward's making and because of how much they've wanted him. But here we are a couple months later. I want to throw that back out at you. Um, obviously, Charlotte has had interest in Miles Turner for a while. Zach Lowe reported it. I mean, there's different avenues they can go. They do have a lot of cap space this year, I think close to $28 million. They could go out and basically just trade a lopsided contract, one of their rookie guys or rookie contract guys, Bridges or Washington trade up for Turner. But do you think that with the youth movement that they have there, they might be more willing to trade a guy like Gordon Hayward for a uh, like a Turner Lamb package? And would you be okay with that if you're the Pacers? Again, it just it gets tough because you're so sick of not having everybody available. Right. Then you look at well, Gordon wouldn't have been available this year, and now he's thirty. That just get it's a it it was maybe a hope of hey, the ankle was broken, just like you know, similar to Paul George. Once you break something and you heal it, it should be good to go. So maybe people would be a little bit too cautious on that, and he's going to be good going forward. He already missed the playoffs once here, and 
I think that his age combined with that factor and all the injury risks that you have on, I think that that just makes it really tough. And I think that it's kind of agonizing for them a little bit because, you know, here's a guy that's from Indiana that clearly is a priority for them to acquire and retain guys who actually want to play for the Pacers um, in a in a real sense of like long term make a career here. Um, I do think that that was a factor in them signing McDermott. Um, you know, they they love it when somebody actually really truly wants to be here, and, and I think it was pretty clear that Hayward did. Um, he still lives here, correct? I, I believe that's true. Um, yeah, I know he has, he has a house he here. Yeah, uh, he has a house here at least. You know, yeah. um, and so that that's I think that that gets really tempting, um, but. Yeah, I mean he'll 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 end up being thirty one by the end of the next season. Ah, it's just that's tough, it is. and that's a lot of money because every time if you commit that much to one player, Pacers have a real strict uh, uh, you know uh, salary uh, uh, cap internally because of how much they will spend. That ends up costing you a player, and I know that Lamb hasn't been quite as available. Um, and you know, but you maybe try to fight, take that money, and find someone else that can contribute off the bench. That makes it tough for me. I think that they, of course, I think that they, they might look at it, um, and I wouldn't be surprised either. But I think that it, it just it's tough with his uh, inability to be available for the playoffs. Yeah, no, I, I I see all those concerns, and it's it's just you just have wishful thinking, I guess. That hopefully nobody is injured, but at the at, I feel like whoever the Pacers trade for, they're going to get injured at some point. It just feels <laughs> inevitable because I don't really remember Oladipo missing a ton of time in his prior stops before getting here, and then that whole thing just you know that really just killed the momentum of this team because after that first season without Paul George and they took LeBron to seven games, you really felt like. Hey, we're, I mean, the, everybody was excited about this team. And then since then, it's just been slowly just getting less and less exciting as we continue to go through all these injuries. And, and you know, you can say it's an excuse. You can say what you want. But bottom line is injuries happen and you can't control them. So people that get mad about it, I, I feel you. You know, it's tired. You get tired of hearing that excuse. And maybe, like you said, that's on the front office to go out and get players that aren't injury prone. But at the same time, it's easier said than done when you're trying to build a team. It's it's a very complex thing to do, and I don't think people that are fans realize how difficult it is to actually go out and build a team. But I do just have a couple more questions for you before I get you out of here. I know we've been going for a little bit, so um, yeah, you're fine. You're, no, no worries. Okay, okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure that we're not. I'm not taking too much of your of your holiday here. But um, in terms of the Pacers and what they need, they need to improve on, my my thing with what I feel like they should improve on the most, and I'm not even going to go on court because I know a lot of people can get into all that. I just think they need someone in the locker room to be a leader, and I don't I don't feel like they have that leadership. I think just having a veteran presence on a team can make a huge difference. And not saying these are bad guys, but I just feel like there could be some more connectivity between the coaching staff and the players than there has been the last couple of years. I think that's where you've really seen the absence of Thad Young not being on the roster. But – in terms of whatever you want to go with, what is one area the Pacers need to improve on? It's interesting because it's. I always feel comfortable talking about locker and stuff because I'm not super in there. And yeah. you know, they had that that Oladipo report, the one that came out that kind of blew everything open that Jay Michael did. Um, it kind of sounded like the whole team wanted to like break through a wall for Malcolm Brogdon. Um, you know, this 
I know that people have said some things about Michael, Malcolm Brogdon and maybe kind of being sour on McMillan and maybe sour on Bjorkren. It's an interesting thing because aren't we? Like people were sour on McMillan outside of the organization too, you know? And so like it kind of seemed like maybe someone needed to stand up and say, we need a change here in order to, to be better. It's interesting because you think, well, maybe the players shouldn't say that. But also at the same time, it seemed like that's what everybody thought. Um, and then with Bjorkren, it seems kind of wild what's happened this season. And so it, he, he could be labeled as correct if you say, hey, this is kind of wild what's happening. I don't know if this is the guy either. Um, he might be right. <laughs> you know, So it's it gets a little tough in that sort of situation. And maybe you want a player that's always backing the coach uh, no matter what. But it's also kind of... You know, if 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 a team is if if a player starts talking trash about like Bill Belichick, then you're like, okay, this guy is just a trick. <laughs> like, obviously, this guy is an idiot. Um, it's a get him out of here. Um, if you start maybe showing some concerns about a a coach that is you know switching defenses every five seconds in a way that no one seems to explain, you know, maybe he's got kind of a point there. But that that would be my my one thing with with Brogdon. Um, uh, but it's just it's, it, other than that amount of information, I just don't know if I've been there, you know. Um, and so that just gets tough. Um, really, you mentioned like the one thing to change. I mean, I kind of peg down health, honestly. You know, nothing is going to make this team better than just being healthy. Um, I think that that's going to have a big impact on their ability on the court. Um, and still, it just goes back to unlocking the offense, um, you know, making an offense that is – utilizing everyone in, in, in a very strong way. Um, I know Sabonis was put in the post a lot. They kind of had to because Warren wasn't there. Um, you know, Vic, uh, Victor Lodipo wasn't available half the time. And then Levert missed a lot of time. And so you saw him, you know, have a steady diet of kind of low post uh, uh, situations. They just needed to squeak out offense. I mean, even Jeremy Lamb was supposed to fill out points and like, it got desperate there for a while at different parts of the season, and I think that's really what you want to see. But an ideal Pacers offense would have no post-ups for Sabonis, I think. Yeah. Um, entirely getting the ball in the high post, making quick passes. Um, you see how much he handles the ball, but he also touches the ball for like one second on average because he just gets it and whips it back out. When he's kind of pounding it down low, you just want him in the post abusing mismatches. When the defense is scrambling, you get him the ball. Someone's trying to recover. He's smaller than Sabotas. Sabotas is going to wreck that dude. That's what you want. And, you know, having someone that is always putting all these different offensive weapons and putting defenses into fits by moving the ball around and getting it uh, uh, crossing uh, the court back and forth so that someone is always touching the ball and, uh, and, and, and doing well, I think that that is something that can happen. And I think that they have a unique opportunity with Sabonis who can wreck somebody and score in half a second when getting the ball touched in the low post on the move. You've got TJ Warren who also only needs the ball for like one second to be able to score at a high efficiency rate. You've got those two weapons plus uh, other guys that can handle the ball and then maybe Miles Turner that can bomb threes. There's no reason why somebody shouldn't be able to move all those pieces constantly and have a really high-functioning offense. And so that was what we thought we were going to get from Bjorkren. They increased the pace a little bit, and so they scored more points, but they still haven't really kept up with the with how well the rest of the league is uh, moving. And I still think that we need someone that is going to be able to really unlock that. By the way, 
I just broke the wee barrier. I finally did it. I said we when <laughs> referring to the bases I checked. Hey, so hard a, not to do that, but I my, my bad. But uh, no, we, I do it. <laughs> they need to um, um, find someone to unlock that offense. That's still why for me, D'Antoni is the leader in the clubhouse. I think it's so unfair that Mike D'Antoni took two of the greatest franchises in NBA history to seven games multiple times, and everybody's like, "Oh, he can't get it done in the playoffs." It's like. <laughs> God, it's gotta it's just gotta just like drive him absolutely bonkers that oh yeah, they couldn't beat the Warriors of the Spurs. What what a terrible coach. Last few minutes, uh the, they pull away a victory. Um uh some of the greatest rosters ever assembled. Man, this guy can't coach in the playoffs. Uh I feel uh, I feel bad for him on that. But anyway, that's uh, that's why I still interested in Antonio. But offense. They gotta improve the offense for sure. Well, and we can go back to the Antonio for a second here because I think that what is nice about D'Antoni, not saying he'd have a major pull, but I think that he would have some pull in getting players to want to play for him. You know, a, there's been a lot of guys that have gone to Houston and had really good careers, you know, or Phoenix or wherever he's been coaching as the head coach, and he's made the best out of those players, you know, getting them bigger contracts, you know, able to maximize their talent. And I feel like he could do that with some of these guys now, determining – what what kind of offense they run with him and who we have. Sure, there's going to have to be some changes, I think, to the overall roster construction because you're going to probably need some more three-point shooters. But at the end of the day, I don't think that you're going to run a rocket style of offense with James Harden with this team. And I think that's where a lot of fans get not narrow-minded, but they don't see the broad picture of, of what he can do because he's just an offensive guru. And I think if he has all these different parts to, to play with, he can figure out ways to unlock them where it's not the exact same way that he did it in Houston. He's got a lot of basketball knowledge. I mean, I would totally be fine with that hire. I'm not against that. I know there are a lot of people that are anti-D'Antoni, but after watching this season, I feel like at least I know what I'm getting myself into. And he's got the respect of a lot of players. So, you know, you brought up Rogdon, and I know that that can be kind of a sticky situation talking about locker room stuff because it, it's, it's very true. I'm just going off of what I've heard, and I know that in Milwaukee he was – a huge fan of Jason Kidd at first and then turned on him as well. Uh, I've talked to some people that covered the Bucks, and they told me that. So it's just like, okay, so we got to try to figure this personality out. What makes this guy tick? What makes this guy happy? And Kevin Pritchard, when he did come on the podcast, he talked about them having lunch every single day together and communicating and talking and different things like that. So I thought, okay, I mean, Brogdon is the, probably the vocalist, the most vocal guy on this team. Makes a ton of sense for him being the leader, but – for some reason, things just continue to be more drama. I mean, I feel like there's been so much drama between the Pacers and their players and the front office and the coaching staff over the last two years, more than I can probably ever recall. Um, maybe it's just a difference in what's covered and what's reported nowadays. Maybe there's just more reporters out there. I don't know. But again, is he, was he wrong about Kid? I mean, yeah. I mean, there's good points to that, but Kid still wants to be a head coach. So, because <laughs> I thought, and no, no one and no one's no one's taking it. Yeah. I just – I because Giannis didn't want Kid fired was the whole thing Milwaukee told us. And when they finally – they that's why they held on to him so long, I think, is because Giannis really wasn't a fan of it. Cause, but Giannis doesn't like change. So that's that's a whole lot of it too. But anyway, there's different avenues you can look at. Maybe Brogdon is right. But, I mean, I, I just – his style of play to me is, is fine. But I – similar to Sabonis, you know, you don't want Sabonis in the post. I like Brogdon better off ball. I'd rather have the ball in Levert's hands. 
I feel like what we saw between Levert and Sabonis this year towards the end of the season, I know it was the month of May and teams are probably winding down a little bit, but still that chemistry to me made me excited for what the future could look like. And when I feel like Brogdon's like the, the main ball handler out there, it's not my favorite style of basketball to watch. I feel like if he's the third or fourth option on the team, that is up my alley a little bit more. I don't know where you stand on how they use Brogdon offensively, but that's that's where I would like to see him. I just feel like defensively, if he can't really guard fast point guards because there's a lot of quick guys out there now, is he the perfect you know fit with the starting five? Should they maybe try to look at moving him to get an upgrade at point guard? I mean, there's different avenues I could go with all of this stuff, but that's one where I'm looking at. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's – I always just kind of remove the idea of no one's going to be the Steve Nash of this team. Um, it, it, not to say D'Antoni again, but, you know, it's – with Phoenix, they were played so differently than the Rockets did. You know, it's uh, – People say that it might be just James Harden ice the ball. He did that because it was the right thing to do. Um, but, you know, the Rockets, the Suns didn't play like that. You know, he can change it and adapt it for anybody, I think. But with Brogdon, I mean, they brought on Levert. They had Oladipo, and they swapped Oladipo for a guy that was like Oladipo. They clearly share the perspective that you don't want Malcolm Brogdon, you know, pounding the ball and being like a little Chris Paul out there. Mm-hmm. You know, you want... Um, and pretty much every NBA team is moving to this. Uh, um, uh, I thought it was funny when people wondered about, you know, who was going to handle the ball as much between like Chris Paul and James Harden. It's like, share it. Any yeah. team should have multiple players initiating offense in order to be the best. And I think that it's a prerequisite to be an excellent offense um, in the NBA to have three guys that can initiate offense at a high level. And I think that with the Pacers, if they don't move a big for someone like that, they've got three guys in Brogdon, Levert, and Sabonis. Those three guys serve that function. But, like, I think that if you only got have one guy, you're dead in the water in the NBA right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to have multiple people that are going to share the responsibility of initiating offense um, and so, yeah, I think that that's not a good role for Brogdon, but I think Brogdon agrees with that perspective. Um, you know, he wanted to start in, in Milwaukee, of course. Um, and, uh, but he was, I think, happy to be kind of a two next to a point guard. Um, and I think he wants to be a part of a team that has multiple ball handlers, um, and spreads that responsibility around. Um, and basically between Levert, Brogdon, and Sabonis, you have one awesome point guard. Um, they've kind of pieced it together that way. So um, I think that that makes sense. And I think that it's possible, like you saw with the potential Hayward trade, that they might be looking at three guys that can handle it with Sabonis. Yeah. Um, and that's when you really need someone who is very creative offensively to, if you just run pretty basic offensive sets, you're going to have somebody standing around a lot. Um, you need uh, someone that's going to be able to uh, coach the offense to be a lot more active, touch the ball a lot less, move it a lot more, um, which is also a style of basketball. I think that's going to make a lot of uh, old-school uh, Indiana basketball fans happy. You know, five passes for every shot. <laughs> <laughs> I remember those practices. <laughs> yeah, and that's and see, that's why I think Lonzo Ball makes a lot of sense because I don't think he's like – 
a guy that you're just going to anticipate dribbling the ball at the top of the key for 20 seconds and, you know, pulling a Travis Bass or something like that. I feel like he's going to be a ball mover. And, you know, he's just, he sees the floor so well, too. He's a terrific passer and his three point shot's gotten better. So I really feel like, and obviously, I, I think defensively, he's pretty solid, too, for his position. But that's really good. I, really good, I'd say. Yeah. So that, that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like that type of move makes a ton of sense because of what they need. And getting another ball handler really will just help. I mean, just having guys that can put pressure on the defense because that's where I feel like this team could get a lot better offensively is getting to the rim. And and they've done they've they've worked on that this year. Not having Warren really hurt that. I feel like Brogdon's okay at it, but he's just not super athletic. So he doesn't draw a lot of fouls for some reason. But I know a guy like Kyle Lowry, who's not super athletic, gets a lot of foul calls because he knows how to use his body and position himself. And, yes, he does flop a little bit, but every player does, right? So I, I feel like that's something I'd like to see them work on is just getting more drives to the basket and not settling for, for just threes. But I do like the mid-range game some. I know that analytics say that that is not as important, but I, I still think that if you have that part of your game in there, it opens up so much more. For the entirety of the offense, but and that's where you could see a guy like where DeRozan might be uh, super effective for this team if they went out and went that route. So I mean, like I said earlier, there's so many things they can do. But the the question that I've asked a couple times this year with other people, and it's not necessarily a knock on the team. I just said, who is the face of the franchise? If you're looking at the Indiana Pacers, and is that a good or a bad thing, <laughs> depending on your answer? So I'll let you answer those two questions. Well, I, you know, I don't really think that they have one. I mean, I think it's you, – you, you'd have to say Sabonis, I guess. I mean, you'd make All-Star game twice in a row. It has to be him um, if you have to have an answer. But I just don't really think that they have one. Um, they have always sort of marketed kind of everybody on this team. They've tried to make – they tried to do it with Turner. I think that that's clear. They, you know, they had the Turner section and – um, you know, even they had the, the mayor recently doing the, the block, uh, the defensive player of the year kind of campaign. Um, in a way, I think they kind of want it to be Turner, especially since he's homegrown, so to speak. Um, but I just, if you have to give an answer, it has to be Sabonis, but I just don't think that they have one, really. Well, that can be your answer, but do you think that's a good or a bad thing? I think they don't that, have one. I don't know. I just, <laughs> I, I never really cared about, like, Who's like the face? Who's the guy? I mean, obviously it was Oladipo, um, and actually, I still think that the way that that played out. I know you mentioned like a missed opportunity and how sad it was, and it's true. But I still think that they kind of dodged a bullet in a way because oh, I think I that definitely agree. Because <laughs> well, I mean, from from the start, what I mean is okay. even with the injury, because I think that he was amazing in the first half of that year. And that Oladipo kind of returning to not being that great kind of happened in the second half of that year. And even in the playoffs, even though they did well overall, Oladipo didn't really play that well in the playoffs. And then the next season, he wasn't off to a very good start. He, by volume of scoring, was still in the all-star conversation, but he wasn't that all-NBA type of guy and I was starting to have real doubts that it was ever going to come back. It just seemed like there was maybe kind of a magical few months. I think that there's a scenario where the Pacers are maxing out Oladipo and they, they don't really have much depth mm-hmm. and maybe even only have four good starters. Um, but anyway, that's a whole other thought. But it's <laughs> I think that it kind of worked out pretty well 
it, it, given that fact, I think that they would have been really locked into the treadmill mediocrity with a maxed out Oladipo. Um, but um, uh, anyway, <laughs> so he was like uh, obviously going to be like that face of the franchise, and they've had you know Paul George, and they've had Reggie Miller, and then they had Danny Granger for a while. Um, I don't really think that there is one right here, and I think that they've really got to put together a really strong season um, that truly capitalizes on their potential. Um, last year, they were on a 50-win pace. I really thought this year was going to be the one that they busted out. Obviously, it didn't happen. Give it another year of that happening, but I, I just don't think anybody's really earned that mantle yet. Yeah. Well, I, and, I, and I agree with that. I mean, I would, I would default Sabonis just because of the two-time All-Stars appearances. But at the same time, like you said, I mean, is he really the face of the franchise? He's not someone that I'm like, hey, go give me a bucket at the end of the game, where most of the time the face of the franchise usually is that star-level player. I mean, like you said, Reggie, Jermaine, Danny, Paul, and then Victor. It's just like they need that guy that can go out there and get him a bucket. And I just don't know if they have that guy yet. I mean, maybe they do in, in, in a combination of Warren and, and, and Lavert. And sometimes you can have Sabonis be that guy if you know they're overplaying them like we saw early against Boston where they read that – that whole entire defense pretty perfectly, but all in all, I just, I don't necessarily think it's a terrible thing because if I'm looking at that Pistons team, like we mentioned earlier in the podcast, who was the face of that franchise? It's, you can kind of make cases for a couple of them, right? So it's, it's to me where I think that it's okay if they don't have one, they just got to build the right roster. And I didn't give you this question ahead of time. So I'm sorry. It just kind of popped in my head, but as we wrap this up, Looking at the teams that are in the playoffs currently right now, assuming the Pacers, let's just say they bring this team back, mostly the same, maybe a few changes, maybe they don't make any changes to a certain lineup, whatever. Where do you see them competing against the, 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 the rest of the Eastern Conference and what you saw this year? Because to me, I feel like a lot of these other teams have gotten better and their younger players are starting to get better, like a team like Atlanta to me. Uh, New York, I still feel like they just overachieved this season and they've got a couple moves to make to really be a serious contender. But, you know, even Boston, even Miami, even though Jimmy Butler had a bad series, Washington, they still have got two studs in Westbrook and Bill. I mean, where do you put this team, this Pacers team at amongst those uh, Eastern Conference teams? Um, it's interesting to see what happened with Miami this season overall and in the playoffs because there is a little bit of a uh, they are who they thought they were kind of situation with them where last year it was stunning to me how well they had played. Yeah. And <laughs> even not just in the bubble, but all throughout the season, I thought this team's good, but they're not that good. And it started to make me think really crazy things about like, maybe Jimmy Butler's a basketball genius. And like, maybe his attitude in the locker room is what every team needs. And maybe he's the only person that is right. And like, <laughs> all this is crazy stuff. And, and it's good to see them kind of come down to earth a little bit. They're good. If they make a big move, obviously that changes things. But, like, I don't think that they are really, like, discernibly better than a healthy Pacers squad, honestly. Um, I mean, with respect to everything that they've done and how good Spolstra is as a coach, uh, I think they still need a major move uh, to be able to uh, get to a different level. I still think that there is a little bit of a we, this is fun, that we're good factor with the Knicks. Um and Celtics, that's a real interesting one because they obviously had injuries and they had some problems and they should be better. Um, and so I think that that's a team that will be better next year. 
Um, Washington, not super worried about Washington. Um, I think that a good team should be able to handle them well. Um, and so, you know, obviously Philly and the Nets and the Bucks, they aren't going anywhere. Um, and with Trey Young on the rise, so glad to see Trey, the, the Atlanta Hawks do well in the sense that all this dumb stuff about Trey Young not really being good enough and, and being too bad on defense to really be on a contender and like empty stats and blah, 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 blah. I'm glad to see him good. He's good. I mean, good players are good. Um, I think that you learn this lesson over and over and over again. Some team's going to trade for Carl Anthony Towns and be amazing. And they're going to be like, oh yeah, he is good. Like it, you need a full roster to compete. Sometimes they just don't have it until a certain point. Um, and they do need to make some improvements. Trey Young got better, but um, I think Atlanta is still pretty solidly a good team, but um, you know, it's the, the question marks around what Boston and Miami are going to do, uh, I think make that a little bit interesting, but I just see no reason why they can't be in the mix with uh, Atlanta, Boston, Miami, uh, depending on what moves are made. And I still would consider like kind of the Knicks and the Wizards and the Hornets uh, a tier below all of those guys. What about what about a team like Chicago that made the move for Vucevic having a off season under their belt, and then whatever Toronto can muster up with uh, their cap space? Yeah, it's, uh, Toronto's interesting. They obviously seem pretty smart. They seem like one of those franchises where you know it's death to over um, underestimate them. They seem to be getting the most out of what they have. It's just a matter of what they do in the off season. There's too many to, to predict there. But if they get a decent amount of talent. I'm always uh, putting uh, stock um, in the Toronto Raptors. With the Bulls, it's sort of the opposite situation where they seem a little less. And the, just that roster just isn't that good. It was I like that they moved for Vucevic. That was something that they needed to do. I don't love a lot of the rest of the roster there um, in a sense that it seems like they are close enough to being good. Um, and so I think that they are maybe a little bit closer to kind of a Washington Wizards level team where mm -hmm. they're just one where they'll get a couple of good players and then the rest of the roster will be pretty bad. Um, and I, it doesn't seem like, unless I'm just really underestimating like the development of like Patrick Williams or something, like I, I just don't think that they're going to make a huge leap uh, going into the next season. But, you know, I'm also not paying that much attention to the Chicago Bulls. So maybe they've got... Uh, uh, talent uh, uh, hanging around the margins that I'm not really aware of, but they just they're not close enough roster wise uh, to be anything more than uh, back half of the uh, of the playoffs uh, fodder. Yeah, I, I definitely think that Chicago has a lot of holes in their roster. I like Vooch, I like Levine, I think Patrick Williams, like you said, has a bright future. But you know, at this stage in his career, I don't think that Young is a great starter. I mean, he's fine, but with that group, I feel like maybe more of a bench role would be better for him. Thomas Sadoransky was their best point guard last year. I think that's got to change. Kobe White, a guy that I never really cared for out of UNC, I just thought, eh, he's okay. I don't really think he's going to amount to much as a pro. Yeah, I just – I don't feel like his fit's been great there either, but there there's so many different moves they could make with their roster and their contracts. I know they have a lot of expirings, but trading those picks away to Orlando could end up biting them in the butt. Um, Lori marketing has been a definite disappointment. They've just not really hit on their draft picks, to be honest with you. So that's that's the nature of the beast when you when you hit on your picks and when you don't and that kind of thing. It really does matter. And that's why the Pacers, thankfully, when they've been in the lottery for the most part, they've done a decent job of getting someone that can help them out. I know Tyler Hansborough was probably one of the worst ones in the lottery over the last 10 to 12 years, but 
still was, you know, a starter for the team that made it to the eight seed against the Bulls. And say what you want about him. I mean, he had definitely flaws to his game, but I liked him uh, as a backup guy, a bench guy that was competitive in some ways. I mean, I don't know how you feel about Tyler Hansborough, but uh, obviously there was a lot to be desired there, especially how high he was picked and who was picked after him. There's always that debate, but I feel like, <laughs> you know, people try to come at uh, the TJ Leaf pick and say it was Tyler Hansborough 2.0, but I feel like Hansborough was just uh, a couple notches above uh, TJ Leaf. <laughs> Um, uh, I think that maybe I, I I don't see much of a difference between the two. <laughs> Honestly, they gave him a lot more burn. Hansborough did, but um, yeah, <laughs> never improved. That's the thing. It's almost like he got worse as a as a player every year. I just I felt like when uh that whole Paul George came into the starting lineup, they got Frank Vogel in there. I liked Hansborough's hustle in that series against the Bulls, and maybe that's kind of what. Made me like, okay, I like him. He had that play. He got that steal the dunk. I, I remember that. That was yeah. – uh, thank you, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, but still, I mean, it's funny because you go back and watch those Heat series where he was playing minutes off the bench. And then they got Scola, and obviously those minutes went away. But still, it's just – you know, maybe, maybe T.J. Leaf, like he said, just didn't get a chance to get any burn with the, with the Pacers. But – uh, at at the same time, I don't know. I don't know where I stand on that. Another none of them really matter because none of them were good for the Pacers to to say the least. But moving forward, obviously 13th pick in the draft, still not sure on a decision on Nate Bjorkman or not, and we still have quite a ways to go before we can see any trades happening. Do you anticipate a busy offseason or no? Um, I. Because well, I mean, obviously, there's going to be—I think there's going to be a coaching change. Yeah, and I think that there's going to be a temptation to run everybody back in the hopes that they finally get healthy and see what happens with it with a new coach. Um, it's all about opportunity. I think it's less about like we need to go out and use this pick to find something, or we need to go out and make this. It's like if someone pops free that has a chance. You know, the Pacers have kind of the ammo to really get almost any player. Um, that they want. Um, it, it, being able to package two really cost-controlled players on excellent contracts and maybe a pick should be enough to get basically anybody if they really wanted to do that. And so um, it's just a matter of does that opportunity pop free and do they like it? Um, and so I still think that maybe minor moves and kind of running it back a little bit would be at least from a from a team building perspective. That would be interesting. But like I said, people have amnesia about this. They seem very, very willing to break up some uh, uh, Turbonus, and I think that if they get the right opportunity to do so, they'll do it. But they just need that fifth starter to come yeah. back. That's the major key. It can't be like Gary Harris or something. It's got to be someone a little bit better. Um, and so it's just, uh, you know, there's always seen that trade for like that, like C-level player. Uh, yeah. They need a B-level player uh, to be able to really make that move. Um, and it's just whether or not that guy comes available. I don't see a real clear one like there was with Hayward last year, but uh, you never know what happens. NBA is crazy. It, it definitely is. So, Dave, we've been talking for a long time. I appreciate you coming on and doing this on a holiday and, you know, just kind of looking at the state of the team and what could happen next. So, where can people find you at on Twitter? And did you have anything else you wanted to uh, discuss before I let you go? No, not really, but uh, just uh, uh, go out and grill something. It's beautiful. Yeah, get them char marks on there. They're good. 
All right, find, you can find Dave on Twitter at MillerTimePod. I'm at Alex Golden BA, and you can check out our podcast at Setting the Pace 3. And we will talk to y'all next week. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.